Today on Soundtrack Alley, you'll hear as I discuss Field of Dreams from 1989. It's a classic baseball film with Kevin Costner, Ray Liotta, and James Earl Jones. You'll hear me as I discuss some facts on the film, and I'll talk, of course, about the score by James Horner. So sit back and relax as the show begins now. Hello, I am Randy Andrews, and today I'll be talking about the calm and enjoyable film known as Field of Dreams. Here's the basic plot. When Iowa farmer Ray, who's played by Kevin Costner, hears a mysterious voice one night in his cornfield saying, if you build it, he will come, he feels the need to act. Despite taunts of lunacy, Ray builds a baseball diamond on his land, supported by his wife Annie, who's played by Amy Madigan, and afterward, the ghosts of great players start emerging from the crops to play ball, led by shoeless Joe Jackson. But as Ray learns, this field of dreams is much more than bringing former baseball greats out to play. Let's talk about a few of the facts on the film. I mean, when I first saw this movie, it was at a time where it was played all the time on television. Um, It still is. Uh, It's one of the classic great baseball movies that you can just go back to and just enjoy. And uh, it's actually based upon a real baseball field that actually is built in Iowa. And that's the coolest thing about it. Um, The studio built the baseball diamond on the actual farm in Dyersville, Iowa. And after filming was complete, the family that owned the farm kept the field and added a small hut with inexpensive souvenirs for sale. As of 2018, visitors were free to come to the field and play baseball as they please between April and November. So you can still do that, I'm sure. There was an actual Archibald Moonlight Graham, the people Terrence Mann is interviewing in the bar, were people who knew the real Doc Graham. They found out about the movie and the inclusion of Doc Graham's character. They drove from Chisholm, Minnesota to Iowa. The stories the men shared were actual stories about Doc Graham. Now Ray Liotta, who is now the late great Ray Liotta, Uh, had no baseball experience and batted right-handed, although shoeless Joe Jackson was a lefty. Phil Alden Robinson allowed Leota to bat with his right, 
but still put him through several weeks of extensive training with University of Southern California baseball coach and former Brooklyn Dodger Ron Dido in order to be convincing as one of the sport's greatest hitters. Leota eventually developed a good swing, and the scene where he hits a line drive straight back at Kevin Costner actually happened. Costner's fall on the mound was real, and although it was a surprise, he stayed in character. Now, during the filming, Iowa was in the middle of a drought, and the cornfields surrounding the diamond had to be given lots of extra water in order to grow tall enough for the actors to disappear into the stalks. As a result, the corn grew too fast for the Costner shots. When the corn is above his shoulders, he's walking on an elevated plank. Now, in the novel, instead of seeking fictional author Terrence Mann, Ray Kinsella seeks real-life 60s author J.D. Salinger. And in 1947, Salinger wrote a story called A Young Girl in 1941 with no waste at all. Featuring a character named Ray Kinsella, and in his most famous work, the novel Catcher in the Rye, one of Holden's Caulfield's classmates was Richard Kinsella, and in the original novel, Ray has a twin brother named Richard. So, kind of your six degrees to Kevin Bacon. Now, also, it's really interesting... Uh, to give this more added real-world depth, you can enter a coordinates on the Google Maps to find the actual field uh, that's built for the film. Now, if you listen carefully, you enter 40 degrees, 29 by or 29 by 51.8 degrees north. Uh, to 91 degrees 03 by 18.4 degrees west. Uh, In Google Maps for the location, uh, it should pinpoint that directly. Um, I could provide that in the liner notes, or not in the liner notes, but in the the show notes uh, for this week's show uh, to give you a real-world map um, on the website. So, as part of the pregame ceremonies, Kevin Costner walked onto the field through surrounding cornfields and followed soon after by the White Sox and the Yankees players and managers in the echo of the film scene. The White Sox won 9-8 on a two-run walk-off, home run by shortstop Tim Anderson, after the Yankees came back and took the lead in the top of the ninth inning with home runs from Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton Anderson's was the White Sox 15th walk-off home run against the Yankees in team history, with shoeless Joe Jackson hitting the very first. The game was also called the most-watched regular-season MLB game since 2005. Now, Archibald Moonlet Wright Graham, he was a real ball player in June 29, 1905 with the New York Giants. He played one Major League Baseball game. 
Following that one game, he continued playing professionally through the 1908 season, mostly in New York State League, until retiring at the age of 30. Now, there were thousands of pallets of green grass brought in to make the baseball field, but due to the haste in planting, because of the shooting schedule, the grass was not able to grow appropriately and died. In order to keep the green grass, the production crew had to paint it, which is sad but true. Now, during a lunch with the Iowa Chamber of Commerce, Phil Alden Robinson broached his idea of a final scene in which headlights could be seen for miles along the horizon. The chamber folks replied that it could be done, and the shooting of the final scene became a community event. The film crew was hidden on the farm to make sure the aerial shots did not reveal them. Dyersville was then blocked out, and local extras drove their vehicles to the field in order to give the illusion of movement. The drivers were instructed to continuously switch between their low and high beams. Now, although uh, here with James Earl Jones, he decided to do the film after his wife read the script and became mesmerized by Mann's People Will Come speech. Both joked they had concern that the scene would be cut from the film, which it wasn't, and it was an excellent scene. Now, there were a lot of Uh, baseball movies that came out during the 80s and one of them that was released six months uh, following or prior was Eight Men Out which was released in 1988 and it portrayed the historical depiction of the 1919 White Sox World Series scandal and the proximity to the release generated public awareness and sympathies toward the team's plight. As a result, public sentiment began to grow in favor of seeing Joe Jackson's lifetime ban from Major League Baseball being overturned. At the end of August 2015, Commissioner Rob Manfred stated that he had reviewed the actions of Commissioner Giamatti and Vincent, judged them to be correct, and had determined that it was not appropriate to reopen the matter, which, you know, for a lot of reasons makes a whole lot of sense. Now, for the final shot in the film, the local Dyersville Police Department was required to direct traffic for four hours from a widespread of six miles after the aerial shots were complete, which uh, which also makes a lot of sense. And uh, there's some real-world uh, interesting uh, points to this movie, such as the story depended on the farm, row after row of high corn, but when shooting was set to begin, the crop was stunted due to the worst drought um, since the Dust Bowl. And three weeks before shooting, the company spent $25,000 to truck in water from the Mississippi River to help the corn grow. As a hedge against the possibly possible failing, the production designer, Dennis Gasner, ordered 50000 Uh, silk corn stalks from South Korea, but it turned out not to be necessary as the crop began to grow in time. Uh, That's a lot of crop. That's a lot of, uh, you know, silk. So it was really interesting. Some of the 
facts on some of the characters. When Shoeless Joe Jackson asks about the lights in the ball field, Ray comments that every ball park has them, adding even Wrigley. And Wrigley Field famously had been the only major league stadium without lights, not adding them until August 1988, a few months prior to the film's release. And in the novel, Ray told Jackson that every ballpark except Wrigley had lights, which is interesting. Now, although Terrence Mann ends up admitting that he had heard and saw the images at Fenway Park, there's a subtle hint that he was aware of what was going on during the game. If you pay close attention to Mann, he suddenly stiffens up when Ray hears the voice say, Go the distance. He then leans forward in his seat when the scoreboard lights up with Moonlight Graham stats. Uh, so there are so many um, ball, <laughs> baseball references in this uh, film, but let's uh, let's kind of start uh, getting toward the scoring side of things. Uh, Phil Alden Robinson had created a temp track. Uh, which was disliked by Universal executives. When the announcement of James Horner as composer was made, they work. Uh, they felt more positive because they expected a big orchestral score, similar to Horner's work for An American Tale. Horner, in contrast, liked the temporary score, finding it quiet and kind of ghostly. He decided to follow the idea of the temp track, creating an atmospheric soundtrack that would focus on the emotions and that's truly what he did um there wasn't a ton of visuals that had to be done for the film and so uh it changed the relevancy of how the score was composed and how it was done um even even with different shots in the movie um the final shot of the film was a big community event. We we know about that. Um, at first, James Horner was unsure if he could work on the film due to scheduling restrictions. Then he watched a rough cut and was so moved that he accepted the job of scoring the film. And uh, Phil Alden Robinson's heartwarming fairy tale had become a staple of bloke cinema viewing since its release being the tale of a rookie Iowa farmer Kevin Costner in his most likable performance who starts hearing a voice saying if you build it he will come unsure of who he is Costner twigs that he is supposed to build a baseball um, pitch and lure the ghost of the old baseball team to his home why remains unclear until the end, but the film is so possessed of its own logic and sense of magic realism that it would take uh, a churl not to enjoy it. There's a strong support from A.B. Madigan, uh, James Earl Jones, and even Burt Lancaster, who appears. And of course, of course, the scoring by Horner himself. So... Here's something that really stands out. The opener, the cornfield, is really an enticing one. It features a typically warm trumpet sandwiched between scents and shakuhachi uh, before leading onto a simply exquisite piano solo 
which ambles along delightfully. It speaks of Americana, cornfields, good intentions, and the mystical, all of which are central conceits to the film. Unlike Horner's usual work, there's a theme in there, but it takes the rest of the score to draw it out. Rather than club you over the head uh, from the start, Horner is more reserved here. So let's play this cue and really appreciate how its classic sound really can draw you in.
The second track that I want to play is called Deciding to Build the Field. Uh, it marks the first of several unexpected deviations for the composer, venturing into soft rock territory and lending the fairy tale synthesizer and piano wash to a decidedly modern edge. Now, the piano and the synthesizer really create the mood, and it ventures into low woodwinds to make us appreciate the basic theme that Horner puts together here. It breaks into some great rock guitar to bring things into a montage of building the park. It's a fabulous display, and Horner pulls out all the stops on this delightful cue. So let's hear that now.
the mysterious Shoeless Joe plays around more extensively with electronic design, showcasing Horner's rare herd ability in the field. We get the theme throughout the film, and it's scattered and mixed through the cues and motif in the film. Uh, Old Ball Players is a swing jazz piece, entirely appropriate for the representing of the resurrected sportsman from another era. Well, uh, this piece really is an enjoyable example of how versatile Horner was when composing. He may have taken liberties with his own music, but with this film, he was using only what was there. Nothing reconnected, but simple and calm. It's a wonderful score to listen to on its own. Let's go ahead and enjoy this cue, Old Ball Players. Throughout, Horner showcases a willingness to experiment and blend contrasting styles together in a way he didn't do since. It's a quietly poignant collage of conflicting ideas and emotions. His instrumental solos are also outstanding, especially the lovely acoustic guitar in Field of Dreams, much more heartfelt than his bombastic work. Uh, the main cue that features in the film is part of that simple acoustic guitar. It's so amazing as Tommy Tedesco is one of the solo guitarists. The smaller ensemble of musical players really make the film stand out even more. So let's go ahead and play the main theme for Field of Dreams called 
field of dreams. There's two cues next that I want to feature. This is a just talking briefly on this. The library brings back the pop stylings, but with a funky bass line and greater sense of movement as Costner's cross-country trip to track down Earl Jones bears fruit. 
And while Moonlight Graham is the eeriest track with some moody piano work as Burt Lancaster finally makes his appearance. And it's it's really interesting with these two cues that they they play off one another. So we're going to play both of them. First, we're going to play the library and then Moonlight Graham.
Night Mist tantalizingly builds the lovely main theme for its magnificent statement in the closing two tracks before the surprising violent Doc's memories both shatters and then restores the calming idol prior to the climax. And then it arrives that the finale, the duo of the place where dreams come true and end credits, full of the resplendent, more familiar hornerisms, lush strings, muted brasses, counterpoint from the winds, irresistible melodic lines. Now, uh, the only two cues that I'll play here, though, right now, is the place where dreams come true and uh, the end credits. And this is, this is where our episode ends for today. I want to thank you for enjoying this, this episode and enjoying the music of James Horner. Uh, Horner really has been prepping us for this moment through the score um, from the start. And his career or careful buildup pays off in spades. And this is where the Thomas Newman comparison comes in again, uh, building to that iconic moment of revelation in the film's closing sequence, guaranteed to reduce grown men to tears. Uh, the end credits then wraps up the most attractive moments in a terrific four-minute package. It closes the book on one of James Horner's greatest and most individual masterpieces. We've come to an end of Soundtrack Alley today. I'd like to thank Alexander Shebel for composing the newly updated uh, Soundtrack Alley's theme music. Find his work at xanderscores.com. And with the close of the show, you can find me through social media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Uh, email me at soundtrackalley at gmail.com. And of course, check out all my other shows over on Cinematic Sound Radio, including The Soundtrack Essentials, or The Essential Soundtracks, that's what it's called now, The Essential Soundtracks, as well as Anime Spectacular, which I will soon have new material going up for that show as well. So both of those shows are soon to show up, and uh, find them at cinematicsound.net. And until next time, take care and happy listening.
Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley. If you are an Apple podcast, please give the show a five-star rating. Check out the content over at SoundtrackAlley.com, as well as Cinematic Sound Radio, where most of my new material is posted. If you have a comment, question, or concern, please email me at SoundtrackAlley at gmail.com. 